Welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. Today, I chat with Jessica, who discusses her non-traditional path into the world of being a copywriter in advertising and how she ended up being able to live the van life. <laughs> Early on, she had her mindset on being a writer and no one could tell her otherwise. Jessica opens up about the journey of becoming a writer and the uncertainty that plagued her early in her life. We also hear about her path to becoming a successful copywriter and how her experience at several companies shaped her as a woman in the corporate writing world. Jessica also describes some of the difficulties of being diagnosed with tinnitus, a medical condition that includes constant ringing in the ears, during her career and how that eventually led her to living, working, and traveling across the country in the van. Enjoy this episode. all good. Uh, thank you, Jessica, for joining me on Relatable. I'm so excited to talk to you. And um, you're someone who like we've never met before. So this is going to be exciting for me in terms of a lot of the guests that I've spoken with to date are people either I've known in some capacity or friend of a friend and so new enough. And I met your mom very recently on a girl's trip and we connected like almost immediately. And after we spent the weekend together, she said, oh my gosh, I think you'd love talking to my daughter. <laughs> and, um, and it's funny. <laughs> and it's funny because um, my, the, my team and the people that work with me, we've talked a lot about having someone on the podcast that's had a conversion van experience. And so we'll get to that, but you're like hot topic in terms of um, what's sort of on trend, I think, and what people are pretty into these days. And so to have a real life example of that um, is going to be really cool. And I think to kind of learn how that came to be for you uh, will be awesome. So thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm excited <laughs> to talk about it. Anytime I can sing the praises of van life, I'm more yeah. than happy to come and do it. So. <laughs> okay, perfect. So I thought you we could start, um, I start at different places with people, but as I think about you and at least what I know about you so far, um, you did have a career shift, right? Or, or a job switch. So I, from what I know, tell me if I'm off on this, but you had a job um, in, in advertising at an organization and then, um, and you can talk more about that story, but decided to leave that organization and then pursued a different role within advertising. So I, I think what would be helpful is to start there with that role, um, your first, and I don't know if that was your first like official role out of school, or maybe talk a little bit about your path in terms of your career of advertising, because I think that's also an elusive career where people, it's hard and it's competitive. And um, yeah. so maybe we could talk about that. And I think that will lead us eventually to 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 van life. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. I mean, I think you're to your point about it being elusive. I had a really non-traditional path into advertising. Um, I have been a writer my whole life. There was really no question that that's, that's what I was going to ah. do. I used to like, like, if you see any pictures of me from childhood, I'm dressed so strangely in like little vests and like posing in a really like 
poised way because I just wanted to be my English teacher from like <laughs> third grade on. So I was just like dressed like a 50 year old woman from the nineties from like age eight to 12. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what I always, always wanted to do. Uh, and then you had to take, I went to Belmont university in Nashville and you had to take a class that like, I think unformally was called, um, what the hell do I do with my English degree? And someone came in, uh, he was a copywriter at an agency in town. And he was like, we drink at work and we play basketball at work and we're creative all day. And I was like, I've never heard of this. What do you do? He's like, I'm a copywriter. I, like, I have to do that. Mm. Um, and, and so that was really the, the only time I had ever thought I could do an office job. But I think the idea of doing an office job sort of terrified me yeah. um, outside of getting to be creative. So you know, having said that most people who get into advertising would go to portfolio school. That's the, the standard path you go, you choose a discipline, you work, study existing advertising and build your portfolio book. Right. That's what you use to get hired. So I didn't know any of this, uh, even honestly, after my internship, they'd never had a copywriting intern before they didn't really know how to like set me up. Um, so I had to, really kind of come in through the back way into mm -hmm. advertising. Um, so I, I freelanced basically for anyone that I could um, doing writing websites. I think one of the first things I wrote was the an advertisement that goes like on the back of the bathroom stall <laughs> that you would see. Yeah. <laughs> What's great is, you know, I still have that client this 10 years later now. And, and wow. we recently I helped him like name a restaurant. So pretty incredible to watch it, watch oh, it grow. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it was not, it was not a traditional path into advertising. I, I sort of hopped from freelance, uh, sustaining myself mostly as a nanny for a couple of years, mm -hmm. eventually got um, my first temp writing job at a real estate agency in Chicago, and then moved to Detroit to take my first full-time in-house role had a couple agencies, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it you, was not short at all. Can you explain what a copywriter does? Oh yeah. Yeah. Everybody doesn't know what a copywriter <laughs> does. I've been in so many cabs and every, like they'll ask me what I do. And I say that and they're like, well, you know, I have like a song I've been looking to get copyrighted. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's not what I do, but right. Um, yeah. So essentially what a copywriter does is if you, there's art and there's copy, and those are the two components of every ad that you see. Mm -hmm. um, the designer, the art does the pictures, the copywriter does the words. And this makes a lot of sense when you're looking at like a billboard with just do it on it, right? It's like, obviously copywriter wrote just do it, uh, but it gets um, a bit more conceptual when you think about what the job in advertising really entails, which is to think of whole campaigns and articulate them in words. And so, you know, coming out from that, just mm -hmm. do a billboard, there is a whole conversation that would have had to happen that says, okay, we want to set up Nike as this. And I'm guessing this, you sure. could do a case study on it, that right. tell you the real thing, but you know, we want to set up Nike as this sort of inspiration. Our products are this inspiration spark moment for your movement, for your movement practice, your athleticism. How do we articulate that? Mm -hmm. Um, and a, a creative team would have come together and, and then this, the copywriter would articulate this idea 
um, of just do it that's expressed through a commercial they would write and maybe a social post and some out of home. And that's essentially your job as a copywriter. So a lot of rejection, mm. <laughs> a lot of ideas, and a lot of rejection. Yeah. Yeah. And the creative side too, I, I, it's interesting when you think of the text, like I think too of marketing, mm-hmm. like a marketer or the marketing department. Yeah. And I, I think I, I think I conflated those things. Like I thought the marketing person wrote the copy and maybe they do yeah. in a smaller shop. Right. But what you're saying yeah. is that there's, and within that collaborative team, I mean, that's the other thing you mentioned, which I hear about a lot within a creative space, that it's very mm-hmm. much a group activity yeah. uh, to, to get to the, the end, end result or the outcome. Yeah, I would say it's, my work is primarily people. Yeah, um, you're, It's a lot of dynamics that are happening in a, a creative team. But when I started my career, my first full-time job was, as they say, in-house, which mm-hmm. just means I worked for the client. So right. I worked for a brand called Shinola in Detroit. Um, and our CMO would sometimes write copy. Um, she had the final say, she was editing my work. So it's a little different when you work on that side, especially depending on the size of the company. If you're a small startup, you probably, you might not even have a copywriter, right. you, know, you might, <laughs> might be a jack of all trades in that space. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's pretty amazing. The, uh, the large group of individuals that is behind every piece of marketing you see. Yeah. And then you mentioned, so you grew up in Nashville, is, is that right? And so you've mentioned now that you were in Detroit and you were in Chicago. And so I'm curious about, have you f- followed opportunities and that's what led you to these places? Are you someone that has an adventurous spirit and you like to travel? Like, tell me about, cause that's, you know, you're leaving, I was presumably leaving home for the first time. So just tell me about that part of kind of who you are or what attracted you to those different geos? Yeah. I mean, we, so actually we moved a lot when I was a kid between Kentucky and Tennessee. And I think I sort of just like got a taste for starting over and exploring new things. Um, but also, you know, once I knew that I wanted to be a copywriter and ultimately a creative director, although I don't think at that time I could have even conceived of achieving that. Oh, <laughs> like, I don't right. think that was even in my mind. Uh, I just wanted to be hired as a copywriter. Um, you know, once I decided that's what I was going to do, that's what I was going to do. Um, and so you can do that in Nashville. There are some smaller advertising agencies in Nashville, but if you're looking to get a job, you have a better chance of getting a job in a city like Chicago, especially a city like New York. Right. Um, so pretty much every decision that I've made to move has been seeking that opportunity. Although, um, only one of the moves, did I actually have an opportunity secured when I moved there? Um, oh, really? Yeah. So I moved to Chicago with like, this is not an exaggeration of mattress, some clothes, um, and like, $400. And I lived in essentially like a closet, basically in this apartment. I knew no one in the city. It was like, I, I just had, you know, it was really like, this is zero. Um, and I was a nanny and worked in a daycare, uh, until I got, so probably for like a year, a year, probably before I got my first part-time writing job. 
Um, yeah, but I loved it. (laughs) One question I have about that, because I think what's interesting when you know so clearly that you want to do something, or it feels like this is, you said, once I made that connection and I was going to do it at any cost, how is it then like part of me thinks that knowing that so clearly is wonderful because you have a path or a defined path at the Mm -hmm. same time when it's something that you want and it's hard to get and you have to pivot to these other things, is it also kind of heartbreaking because it's there, but you can't reach it? And how do you sustain that resilience when maybe you are getting rejected a lot, or there is a lot of competition, or the fact that I can't even believe you would, you know, you're going to a new place without really knowing anyone and saying, I'm just going to bet on me and bet that this is going to work. Yeah. Yeah. I think the hardest thing about that is, especially as an artist of any kind, um, you are, you're, let's see, how do I say this? A lot of time it felt like I was kind of yelling into a void, right? Like I might take, I might be, I have distinct memories actually, um, of sitting in the apartment of the six month old baby. I was nannying his family and he would nap. And when he would nap, I would take like any free course that I could find online and even as I was doing it, there was this sense of, gosh, is this going to pay off <laughs> like in any way? Like I'm a joke kind of, I'm sort of like pretending to do this thing. Um, and I don't know what inside of me, I think you, I kind of just, I hesitate to say this cause I, I don't want to make a sweeping statement for everyone, but I know for me, I can kind of trust my gut and, mm. and you know, there, it wasn't, everything that I wanted to do, I didn't pursue. Like I used to be a musician, um, a singer, and there was a definitive point in Nashville when I had to make a choice. It was like, I believe that I could have a career as a writer. I believe there is a chance I could be a singer. I think it's a smaller chance. If I'm true to what I feel like I know I need, I'll be okay. If I don't make an album that everyone hears, I can make music for myself but I need to do this. I need to be a writer. And I could feel that in me. And I think if you honor that things unfold, you know, it didn't, it it wasn't linear, but it did unfold. And I, I guess I just had to keep believing that that sounds so, I wish I had something bigger to say to that, but I think you, I like how you said it. Like, I think you do just kind of have to bet on yourself. Um, and I think in your heart closer, you know, if you're moving that path forward, right? Like you're taking one step at a time toward the thing that you want. Um, and that it's baby steps. It's not going to happen overnight. And the idea that it's went now you're in a position, you can look back and see how all the things that you did fed the opportunity. It's just hard when you're in it to know that that's what's happening. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's also like, it really is betting on yourself. Cause I would say most of the decisions that I have made at least someone, if not many people in my life were telling me this is the wrong decision. And I think, you know, yeah, I, you know, I moved to Detroit, um, where I ultimately got the job that launched my career working with Shinola launched my career. Originally I moved there. I'll be honest because I was in love and the man I loved lived there. And everyone was like, Oh my goodness, you're going to move to Detroit for like nobody, you know, they're like, there's no writing jobs. You just got your first writing job and you're going to move. And it's something in my gut was like, no, nope, this is it. And I think someone told me at one point in my life, cause I will say I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. So it's been like the great journey of my life to, to learn this sort of 
how much of a perspective and instinct that I do have. But at some point someone told me, you know, uh, only you have to live your life, right? So you need to make decisions that sit well with you because people will give you their opinion all day long, but they don't have to live those decisions at all. So I'm not saying don't accept wise counsel. Like I have people that I go to for advice on things, but, um, you know, I think when you feel it in your gut, like I know for a fact that if I don't try to do this, this is not going to be honoring me. Like Mm -hmm. you've got to, you've got to do it. And I think it, everything works out on a long enough timeline is another thing that I've heard. And I believe so yeah, did that relationship didn't work out, but man, it really helped my career. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we're after Detroit, where did you went to, when did you get to New York? Was it after Detroit or were there a couple of spots? No, I moved. So I moved back to Chicago to take my first agency job, had like the best year of my life, had so much fun. It was really amazing to like live in Chicago again. Um, but with this life I had built for myself and, (laughs) but I guess I should say, actually, so the company I work for now is also the company I used to work for is also (laughs) the company that gave me offers twice. And the first time they gave me an offer, I declined it. I didn't feel ready to move to New York. I wanted, so I made the decision to go back to Chicago, um, which again is, I guess, listening to yourself. Um, but I couldn't shake thinking about them. So I reapplied a year and some change after being in Chicago. And I, they offered me the job amazingly because it's, it's, it's made me the person that I am, uh, everyone I've met there and just the experiences I've had. Um, but yes, they offered me the job. I cried on the train when I got the job, not because I was excited, but because I realized I was going to have to move to New York city, (laughs) which was not a dream of mine. Right. I was very scared. Um, but I did it. It was hard. The first year was horrible. Um, <laughs> not, not like it wasn't like, and I'm here and it's amazing. Um, but I, yeah, I, I had a really incredible boss. I, I've always had struggles with my mental health. Um, and they really, uh, came to like a peak when I was in New York. Mm. Um, but I was very lucky to have an incredible boss who was an amazing advocate for me and, and allowed me to, find a system that worked for me to, to be able to then be a high performer. I don't know that I could have done that without that support system. Um, and what was the role you were in there? Yeah. So I was hired as a mid-level copywriter. Okay. So did Um, you have people reporting to you or it's, but you're certainly like you're an individual contributor and you're delivering maybe on bigger accounts, like depending on how that structure set up. Yeah. It's in my career. Uh, until very recently, I would say I was continually put in situations in which someone did not know how little I knew, like my career at Shinola took off because they hired me as a junior copywriter. And the woman was like, you don't know how to be a copywriter, but you can tell a story and I see potential in you. And then she left the company a month into me being there and no one but her knew I didn't have experience. So guess who became the global copywriter for the brand Shinola with nobody there to teach her what to do. So it was, it was, that was the most dramatic experience. Uh, Same thing. When I came to New York, they hired me as a bid local copywriter. I'm not exactly sure how I tricked them into thinking I could do that. Um, But I learned on the job, all of that to say, like, 
God, don't they, is women don't go for jobs that they don't feel overqualified for. I'm like, I would never have put myself in those situations, but I am so glad that they happened to me. Yeah. And let me, if you don't mind me asking, just because I feel like it's, it's would be helpful, like given you mentioned the mental health component for you, Hmm. what is it that you're supervisor did. I think often people in leadership roles want to help or they don't necessarily know how to help or even with the construct of I'm assuming because of what I know that you know advertising is a high pace, high stress, high stakes role. And yeah. so the ability to be flexible in that environment or what that looks like, right? That was able to support you. Would you mind talking about that at all just about how they were able to help? Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, your one-stop shop for workshops, coaching, speaking, and soft skills development. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.tfasoftskills.com for more information. Yeah, I love talking about that. I will say too, so the my former boss's name, she goes by L1. It's like definitely the most impactful person probably that's impacted probably like that I've been in contact with in my life. Like this woman, I can't sing her praises enough. Um, she, but in, in terms of what she did that I guess would be practical and maybe helpful for someone who had a, a report dealing with similar things. Um, I have anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. And so now I'm in a really great place with it. Um, but at the time, I think moving to New York was just so jarring for me that it was very triggering. And there would be days when I just couldn't function. Um, I would just have this overwhelming sense of anxiety or, or these looping thoughts that would really just become all consuming. Mm-hmm. But I was trying desperately to be a high performer at this new job that I have in this new city. And partly it was just being able to say that to someone who would hold the space for it. Right. So knowing that I'm not going to get in trouble or, or that her sense of confidence in me, would it all waver if I was completely honest with her? Like, you know, I woke up, I have increased anxiety. I'm really struggling. I just need you to know that. And like, let kind of, she would kind of hold part of that emotional weight right. Of like, okay, Mm. I see this. I'm not going to let you fall. Um, but she also, she never babied me. Like she had high expectations for me. She gave me opportunities to succeed. I proved myself in them. I was promoted quickly, um, because I deserved it. And I think, you know, that's, that's key too. Like, I didn't want to be coddled. I just wanted to know that I was safe. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think she, to her best, ability within the the structure of the organization, you know, this was before COVID. Now we all work remote, but that was not a thing in agency culture then. And she was always really open to be like, you know, I know your anxiety is worse when you feel stuck or you feel like you can't take out and take, get a breath. You can go work from a coffee shop. If you feel like, just let everyone know when you're going to be back. Um, if you, need to stay home, you stay home and just work with your laptop from there. Wow. Um, and yeah. it's, yeah, I mean the flexibility to do that, oh, such like yeah. a sign of relief. Yeah. So. 
I think to your own vulnerability, right? Like I'm, I'm learning more myself about, you know, vulnerability and, and really what that means and how does it, how does it show up both, you know, for you as a human with like your friends and in your like personal relationships, but then work, like what is the right balance of Mm. feeling like I can be vulnerable here, but I'm not using it as a what I love what you said about being coddled. I think there's a misunderstanding sometimes about that, about it. Now me as your leader or your super, like that is a burden, not a burden, but how do I help you? But how, how does it not become an excuse? It's a tricky balance. And so the yeah. fact that I think you just opened up by being vulnerable and honest, and then maybe even about your expectations with it, right? Like I want to be a high performer. I want to excel here. I want to have more opportunities this is how this is getting in my way. Like the more specific maybe you can be with your, with your supervisor or leader, I think it helps. I completely agree. I think too, you know, now that I'm it, it's flips. Now I'm in leadership. I've never found that someone who comes to me being vulnerable about this and needs time takes advantage of it. You know, I think I can understand where that fear comes from for people, but it's just so because usually these people who are more anxious, I feel like are, are high performers and that's part of it. You know, it's sort of feeds itself yeah. the worst yeah. impact that right now, but I, you know, I think it's, I would say for me, and I've, I've said this before to people within my company, you get better work out of people when you make room for them to show up as them, their whole self. So if right. you have an idea that you're going to lose out on something, you're only going to lose out on something if you don't create the conditions for someone to feel fully safe and healthy in order to do their job. Yeah. I think it's worth it. Yeah. So then you, even though you had this great experience and you have a great relationship, um, Mm -hmm. you decide to leave. So tell me about that and what prompted that decision. Yeah. So kind of a major, I guess, plot twist, um, in my story, Uh uh, is in November of 2020, I, uh, was diagnosed with tinnitus. So, oh, um, the ear, yeah. The yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I went to bed one night, you know, can hear silence, woke up the next day, have, a, essentially a fire alarm going off inside my head. <laughs> um, and it, well, would you believe me if I told you it is still going on inside my head? Um, but I am great because uh, that's the weird thing about tinnitus. Um, I can get into that more. But but at the beginning, I was not great. Um, it it was it completely incapacitated me. I was I lost thirty pounds. I wasn't eating. I couldn't do my job. I had to take a leave of absence. It was definitely like. I have fought through a lot of really difficult things in my life. And I've always been like, I can rough through this. And this was the one that like flattened me. It was, I just thought, all right, well, that was a nice run. <laughs> that was a good 29 years, but we're not gonna be able to do it now because I can't function like this. So that happened. How, <laughs> is that hereditary? Like, is that hereditary? Does there, is there any, like, yeah. how does it happen? So, um, tinnitus is a really, it is a really scary thing. And I'm, I'm actually always happy to talk about my experience with it because I think I learned through getting it that there's a lot of misinformation about it. And, and unfortunately, um, because it is so upsetting and I don't know that doctors always do the best job of preparing 
people who've recently been diagnosed with it, um, for the emotional weight of that, you get a lot of people who, you know, people say, I lost my marriage. I lost my job. I, you know, there's a lot of self-harm depression around it, but it doesn't have to be that way. I would mm-hmm. say I'm like definitely, um, an example of it doesn't have to be that way. Um, but they don't know what causes it and there's no cure. There's not even like something you can take to reduce it. Um, I, I remember speaking with a woman who was kind of part of my support network when I was getting through it. And she said, you know, I met this man, you know, I work with like billionaires and I met this man who had tinnitus and he was talking about going to have like another kind of surgery to have it fixed. And she thought if this man can't fix his tinnitus with all these resources, like, what am I doing trying to fix it? Um, so there is like a, a understanding that one thing that can increase tinnitus is hearing loss. Um, I don't have any hearing loss that registers in a test. It's like a mystery. Um, but that is what people usually tie it to. So it's, it's something that a lot of older people get, um, 29 when I got it though. So, wow. And so you said now it's fine. So how do you just, is it something that you grow accustomed to? Yeah. So, um, I would say, (laughs) It's really strange when, when it happens and you go to the doctor, they will basically say, a, not a great doctor. I will say, I went to a really amazing audiologist eventually at Vanderbilt that was wonderful to work with. They have a great clinic there. Um, but I, um, initially the doctor who I went to was kind of like, yeah, you'll get used to it, <laughs> which is impossible to, to comprehend when you're first going through it. Yeah. Um, But what is really incredible about tinnitus that I learned from some people who have lived really great lives with it, um, is you habituate over time, which means that I can't hear it most of the time. And if I can hear it, like I can hear it right now, because we're talking about it. I have a completely neutral relationship to it. Um, Hmm. you have to cultivate that. Um, and I also think like that is, that was a huge pivot point for me, right? It was in order to get over my tinnitus, I had to force myself to start doing things again, like a quote unquote, normal, healthy person. Um, but I also had to meditate and listen to it. Um, so I was it for two minutes, you know, and slowly over time, get better at it and, and cultivate this neutral relationship to the sound. And eventually that just sort of happened naturally, but that really informed kind of how I live my life in general Cause I think I used to be so impacted by everything that would get thrown at me. And now I kind of approach it with like, well, what if I just had a neutral relationship to this? Right. Um, interesting. Oh, it changes everything. <laughs> it changes everything. Yeah. 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 So you said you had to take a leave. Then did you end yeah. up because of that? Like, did you leave mm-hmm. leave? Right. <laughs> um, because yeah. of that or yeah. So the tinnitus put a lot of things into perspective for me, essentially. Um, you know, all I was doing for the year prior was working. I would work all, all day into the evening on my job, then stay up late at night working on my freelance. And when I got tinnitus, I really remember thinking if the last, if all I did with the last, you know, year of my life and essentially all my twenties was work and now it's over, I'm pissed. Like yeah. this cannot be what I did with the last, like, are you kidding me? And, and so I wanted to set boundaries Um, so that gave me, I think a healthier view of work, but then what ultimately happened and, and I've joined this company again now. Um, and I was like, this is right. I'm going to take this. Um, 
So I did. I don't want to, I know we were, we're going to get to the van thing. So yeah. I'm like trying to like keep, I know that you want to talk about that, but um, yeah, ultimately uh, my current, my former job, my current former job yeah, yeah. Um, reached out to me uh, and we're kind of like, look, we'll hire you back in a second if you come back to us. And I said, okay, if you'll give me, you know, more money than I was making at my current job and also a remote first contract. And they said, yes. So I think that's probably yet another example of like the gut feeling, just kind of following it. People had mixed reviews on taking this other job. And ultimately it allowed me to do work that I really like for a significant pay raise and a remote first contract. So, so before we get to the remote first and how you structured that and negotiated that the mm-hmm. company that you left and worked for, how long were you there between, you know, your current company, which was your old company? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like less than a year. And uh, how, how was that relationship? Right. Because that's a big, move and they invested in you. And yeah. I've been on the other side of that as an HR person, right? I've been on the other yeah. side of that where you, you invest in someone and it's, and it's a great relationship, but then something better comes along. So yeah. how did you handle that exit? Yeah. So I think, um, to be totally honest with you, despite the fact that I think we were all understanding of each other, they fought to keep me at least one or two people fought to keep me. And it goes back to knowing what you know, you know, it's very easy in that moment when someone is trying to keep you and has resources to do that, right. um, To, to be influenced away from what, you know, you know, and I will say one really smart thing that could be helpful to someone in this situation that came from L1, my former boss, because I called her in the middle of it. Yeah. You know, she provided me with the advice of you need to separate yourself from what they're promising you, the reality that you're promising, they're promising you and consider the reality of your day to day. If you had additional perk or money, but still right. were living in the reality of what you've witnessed, would you be happy? And the answer is no, I wouldn't be happy. And I think that's, that's the case in relationships as well, right? You have mm-hmm. to really like, we can hope, but the evidence of what someone shows you is what you should be using to make decisions. Yeah, so yeah. Ultimately, that's, you know, I think that was smart. And, and, you know, I think what's interesting about your story and about this in particular, you know, about how you talked about it, you know, especially now, like making a choice isn't a life sentence. No. And, and the idea that what you're describing about, there were events in your life that, that created moments of movement, right. For whatever reason. And then it's like to kind of own your power and say, this is what I know that I want. And this choice that I made was maybe the right choice at the right time, but ultimately now it's not, and it doesn't, you know, and, and I hate to say, you know, you don't owe them anything because that's not really what I mean, but, but by making choices for yourself that are in the best interest of yourself and the impact that you can make, and the value that you can bring and where you're going to be happy, right? If, if those are driving your decision and you tell people that, right, ultimately, right. right. That's that vulnerability of like, it's not you, it's me. Right. But, but, but being able to have that kind of open conversation. Um, and then I'm curious for you. I mean, obviously you had some leverage because they wanted you back. Mm -hmm. How did you know to, to, 
kind of structure that? Or where did the confidence come from to say, this is exactly what I want? Well, I had been living in a van with my former job. So I knew even more. I love it. Okay. Um, You know, I, I completely agree with you about I think it's really important to respect people. And I pride myself on leading with respect Mm -hmm. in all situations. Like that is what I, how I want to go in. That's how I want to leave. Um, at the same time, I know that if my company needs to, they're going to fire me, you know, this is not, we're not family. Um, as much as I look, my current company fought tooth and nail not to do layoffs during COVID. Like they, are very good to their people. I'm not saying that they don't care, but especially, you know, at the larger companies, the reality is it's a business. Right. And so I think I get confidence from that in knowing like (laughs) there are some things, you know, this is not your mom or your friend, especially as a woman and a woman from the South, like I am so terrified. This is not in my nature to do these things, but I've learned the hard way that you've got to get things in writing. You've got to advocate for yourself and it's not personal. You know, so as long as I'm communicating it clearly and with respect, the worst thing they can say is no. And if they say no, we go from there, but you're not going to get something you don't ask for. Again, there's a respect component to this. There's a relationship that existed with this company. You know, this is cookie cutter advice. Um, Right. One can also rescind an offer from you, which (laughs) happened to me earlier in my career. And that's another story. Yeah. Um, But I think, you know, it's you have to think of it like that. Like you are, you are your only, you are your truest and best advocate. Yeah. So you have yeah. to be that for yourself. Right. Yes. And I think so much of what you've talked about so far, and now maybe we can talk a little bit about van and how that happened, mm-hmm. but the idea that it seems like even early on your self-awareness in terms of what you wanted or your gut instincts and connecting, you know, a lot of what I do with young adults, when we do, when we, when we do these workshops, it's like part of what I'm trying to do is get them to look inside a little bit, not like super deep reflective of like, you know, 16 years old, how, you know, but, (laughs) but this idea that like, how are you showing up in the world? Like making a connection to like, how, how are you acting in the world and how are people seeing you just that, right? Like just start there in terms of how you communicate or how you interact with people. And then you can grow And that idea of like getting to know yourself and not what other people think of you and not what your parents think of you and not what your siblings or your partners or your, you know, it's really this like inside job of getting, and it sounds to me like maybe because of some of your hardship in your life, but you even earlier than maybe some had that like that, that scale, like you kind of knew who you were enough to make those choices, which is pretty cool. If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfasoftskills.com for more information. Yeah, I think so. I think also that was people pleaser and like (laughs) thought about it's a fight, you know, to not like, I think about it often. I think a lot of people were like the creative directors of my life because I could kind of see this imaginary version of what I thought they wanted me to be. And so I was always kind of acting reactionary. Right. And it wasn't until I kind Mm -hmm. of learned to lead with what I knew about myself rather than trying to reflect or be reactive to what I assumed a situation I was going into was going to be like, then I had all of this freedom because man, when you go into a situation and you've decided already, I'm curious, I'm open, I'm secure. 
you're like, you're kind of unflappable in a way, right? Yeah. Cause it's yeah, you know, even if sure. it might not respond in the way you'd appreciate them to like, that's not where your security comes from. Right. Um, so I think that's, oh my goodness, that's like the biggest lesson. And it's too, for someone who wants to go into a creative career, so critical because being in advertising means having a perspective. So that's one thing I always say to young women when I talk to them about getting mm. into advertising. It's like practice having your own perspective and standing solidly in it because that's the whole job. Really. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, let's talk about, so it was the, before, the, the job before this job now that you're in where you came back and into yeah. a more senior role and more money and the contract to, to be remote and to do it your way. Tell me about how did that start with the, with the previous role, like in terms of, and just tell me how the van life came to be. Yeah. Well, not to make everything about tinnitus, but it was kind of about the tinnitus. I, you know, I, again, it was like, I had a year where I was working and it, and I think my anxiety played in a lot to that. It felt very safe, right. To sit at home at my desk and work. Right. Um, And I would have things I wanted to do. Like, wow, wouldn't it be so cool to go skydiving? It'd be so cool to go to that bar, you know, where I know my friends are and just have a night with them. But I'd be, Ooh, what if I feel sick? What if I get anxious? I'm just gonna, it'll just be better to stay home. Then I have tinnitus. After that, I was like, forget that every single day I'm doing something that if I go to sleep at night, I'm going to be like, you know what? Lived my life today. Even if it was just like, went on a walk to a store, I've always wanted to go to and bought myself some flowers. It's like, we're doing life every day. Um, and I've always wanted to do van life. And I have had a girlfriend who hooked me up with a woman who had a van in Utah. She's like, Hey, I'll cut you a great deal. If you want to come out and experience this, I had never been on a hike alone in my life. I go out and do this and just start hiking alone in Utah, just traveling around in this van, hiking alone. I'm not, I was not an outdoorsy person. (laughs) All of a sudden I'm living in this box. Best thing I've ever done. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I I know, you know, you have that sometimes like you get to the end of the year, or maybe this is just sad. If it's just me, you're kind of like, you're making a lot of new year's resolutions because you're like, Oh my God, I didn't do enough this year. I'm, I'm turning 31 next week. Um, um, And I'm like, wow, I lived the heck out of this year. Like I don't have, I have no, no regrets. I, I feel like I really, yeah. Oh man. Do you purchase the van? Do you rent the van? So, How does that work? Yeah. Like- <laughs> so I, I rented the van from Ariel in Utah, went all over Utah for the month I was supposed to do it, extended in another month, went all over New Mexico, extended another month, went to Colorado, <laughs> came back to Utah. And, and during that time, I actually went on a date, shout out Tinder, uh, and with a guy and we were showing each other our vans and we stayed in contact. Like we didn't, you know, we had a nice dinner. It was probably like, we're van people. It's nice to have company sometimes. And then, right. you know, we just kind of text and Hey, how's your adventure going? Um, and he said one day, yeah, I'm going, I'm going back. He was from Sweden. I'm going back. Um, I'm gonna sell my van. I think I'm actually just going to rip it apart and just sell it as a normal van. I was like, Oh, don't do that. I will buy it from you. <laughs> so we, we negotiated it. And, and that van that I went in for the first time to look around in a parking lot of a restaurant in Utah is now my van that I travel in. Oh my so, gosh. 
Yeah. <laughs> can I ask you this question, especially as like, cause I can run a little anxious. I'm curious about the alone, like being alone. I think the one thing about anxiety, at least for me, is that if there was someone else around, I felt mm. safer. Like oh, there's yeah. just, right. If there was someone else in case I needed them. Right. I mean, it's much better now, but back like in my twenties, I had a pretty bad, um, mm. and there was all these other, like, I gave all these other people or other places power instead of just saying like, I'm enough here. Like I'll know what to do. I can, I can bank on me. Right. So Mm -hmm. for you having that kind of that, if if anxiety is, is one of your things, how did you deal with being alone? And, and like, did you have anxiety at all when you were doing it? And like, how did you manage that? Yeah. And again, the tinnitus a little bit helped me Ah. learn. I had that same pattern when you have a ringing in your head, that's invisible to everyone else. And only you can decide to get out of bed. You start to learn, like I've got me right. Mm. Um, I think that's something though, that like, essentially I was proving to myself every day in the van. Um, because I, you know, when I hike 21 miles in a day, I'm like, okay, I've got me right. Like, I know that I can do this. I'm strong. I'm showing myself. Um, And I think I felt exactly the way you're describing with anxiety Mm -hmm. down to like little things that I felt like I wasn't, I just told myself I wasn't capable of doing Like I'm not capable of building a comfortable life for myself. It's kind of this belief that I had and every day in the van, it just put me into positions to kind of prove that I, that wasn't true. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, the little things that go wrong, like something's wrong with the electricity. (laughs) Now you don't have any lights or your solar power is down. Um, you know, or you get the van stuck somewhere, you're lost while you're hiking. It, it really is kind of trial by fire. You're learning yeah. uh, how to just be there for yourself. Cause it's true. I mean, ultimately you have everything you need to support yourself, right? You got to sometimes get the evidence to put in the face of that. the lies, right. Of what you're yeah. hearing. Yeah. So. Um, what's the coolest place you've been to? Hmm. That's hard. <laughs> um, the cool. Oh my God. I've traveled so much in the past year. Let me think about what the coolest was. I mean, Utah is my favorite. Utah yeah. is, is my favorite place to be. I did some really incredible slot canyons in Utah, um, around, um, the Escalante national monument. There are two slot canyons, spooky slot Canyon. And what's the other one called peekaboo weird names. Um, <laughs> that are really cool slot canyons are where it can get as narrow as like basically just your body turned sideways can fit through and you have to like carry your backpack to the side. Um, really incredible. Something you would not have caught me doing like you're yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> but really, really cool. Yeah. And now that you're this new c- contract that you've worked out, mm-hmm. um, you can effectively, if you decide to take go somewhere, you'll like pack up your van and you can work from the road essentially. Is that right? And and now you own it. So you do that. Or do you have a place that's stationary? Like, like, uh, or your, no, so the van is your home. Yeah. So right now I I gave up my apartment in New York. That was a really huge decision. Loved that apartment. Um, but it just wasn't financially realistic for me to keep paying for it. Um, so I house it also, uh, I'll do like a month on the road and then house sit. So right now I'm house sitting in Santa Cruz, California, um, for a dog and two cats and eight chickens. Um, and just kind of enjoying that. And then 
next month I'll go back on the road and be in LA and Nashville, New York for a stint, and then back to Santa Fe, New Mexico. So, and do you uh, shower in the van? Ooh, okay. Van tip. No, I don't. Um, my van currently is like, it's, we've got only the essentials of things we need. I cook on the camp stove outside of the van at rest stops. Um, gyms are your shower friend. So, um, I would go in the morning and work out and shower. And that's would be typically my approach. Sometimes campsites also have showers that you can use. REI sells shower wipes. If you're really like in a pinch, <laughs> like this is a glorified baby wipe, but you hey. know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to call it a shower wipe, I guess. Um, yeah, it's my van is like, Oh my God. I love it so much. <laughs> Do you like, ever take people with you or is it always a solo thing or have some people now been like, I want to experience fan life and I, I want to come with you on your next adventure. Yeah. Yeah. So the first three months that I did it were completely alone, which I like, honestly can't recommend enough. Yeah. Like this, if you figure out how to do it safely, you know, make sure you look up places, find safe places to sleep, have some sort of like defense on you. Um, and, and all of that, make sure you have a GPS satellite, um, women travel alone is <laughs> the most empowering thing. Um, but now I actually do travel with my boyfriend. Um, he has takes his Subaru and we like carpool across the country. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's definitely like, is, he, uh, is this wow. a Swedish guy? No, no. Wouldn't that have been great? No, that was just a love story about me and, and my van, Dolly. <laughs> that's, that's that, I like feel like I could write a modern love piece about, and it could start. You think I'm going to, you know, end up with a Swedish man, but I get a green ass van out of it instead. Um, uh, no, no, it's someone I actually met while I was traveling. He was in New York and we sort of formed a relationship over voice notes, actually, before we ever met the first time he was even able to meet me was when I was back in New York for work. And all I had was the time I was driving to and from the airport. He was like, I will pick you up from the airport and I will return you to the airport and I will get those two (laughs) periods of time to meet you. Um, so yeah, cute, but that is cute. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, um, I guess I, where I want to go from here, cause we, we don't have that much time left. I think you talked a lot about like, no people is your business, right? You had talked about that earlier on, even as a copywriter, which I think is interesting as a writer, you wouldn't necessarily make that connection point. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, based on maybe what I shared with your mom, but I'm, I'm a big soft skills Hmm. uh, proponent and talk a lot about that and work with, with really people at all ages, even executives (laughs) on developing these skills and strengthening these skills. And I believe that these skills are those that differentiate you and help you to be more successful. Like, like where you can technically be a very good writer, um, being able to influence and collaborate and communicate in other ways, right. And connect with people is going to be really important. So when you think about your role in advertising now as a senior practitioner, maybe even as you're like navigating that career, Mm -hmm. what are some, you know, one or two of the soft skills that you feel are most important and, and critical to, to the success of someone in your type of work? Mm -hmm. Okay. I have some ideas. You're going to have to tell me if they're soft skills. I'm like, do I technically know if this is a soft skill? Um, I think kind of going back. Okay. I'll start with 
one as a junior, especially it helped me, um, just having empathy, um, building that helps you build relationships, right? Um, our work is really hard. We're not saving lives, but it's extremely demanding. There's a lot of late nights, a lot of rejection and it's emotional. Um, and I think just like Mm -hmm. looking out for what people are feeling and experiencing, um, and being able to do little things that show that you recognize they're a human, like, Hey, I got you this coffee or, now during the pandemic, like I'm Venmoing you for a coffee. Cause I know you had a hard day. Like those little things that connect you with people go a long way when you're kind of in the trenches with them. Um, so I would say that, and that, I mean, that also translates to a lot of our job is collaborative. So if I have empathy for you and I am respecting you and I see you as a person, I'm not going into a brainstorm with you with the idea that I'm going to beat you. I'm like, how can we meet as people and, and generate a really good idea? There are plenty of people who come into the process with the idea that they want to best everyone. And some of them have successful careers. That's not me. Um, I had to learn how to form partnerships in a competitive environment, being more of like a, you know, I, I'm just not, I'm not going to elbow everybody on my way to get to the donuts. (laughs) That's like not my vibe. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's, that's a soft skill. I think the other one that comes to mind is learning, um, which is how to be authentic as a leader. Um, I think that's something I'm really working on because I think you get into leadership and all of a sudden you want to model everything you've seen and you kind of almost like step into like, this is how a creative director behaves. And you forget, like you were just on the other side of the table and what you would have appreciated hearing. And I find myself wanting to like sugarcoat things or, you know, talk in a certain way. And I've just really been working on like leveling that out. I mean, like, how can I approach this authentically? That doesn't mean like not having boundaries and not protecting my team from certain things, but, you know, respecting them human to human. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, it's challenging. It's really challenging when you've got you know, 15 people looking at you on their zoom squares and they're pissed. Um, <laughs> it's like, it is, yeah, you know, learning. So that's what I'm working on. Yeah. I love both of those. I think the empathy and authenticity, um, and, and how those factor into relationship building, mm-hmm. uh, are critical. And I think, um, we are just having a conversation the other day with some leaders that are just moved from individual contributors to leading teams. And this idea, if like putting trust in other people to do the work mm. and how, how hard that is, right. When you're used to doing it yourself and doing it well and what yeah. that investment requires. And then, and then when you have, when you don't have trust that someone can do the work, how do you tell them? Mm. And there was this interesting moment of, have I told them? Like, how do you say to someone, I don't trust, trust the output. And someone came back and said, um, I could never tell someone I don't trust them. I said, no, you didn't. Did you hear what I said? I didn't say trust them as the human. Mm. It's trust the output of the work. Right. And maybe you don't use the word trust, right. That people like it when you're direct Mm -hmm. and you don't have to be harsh and critical and rude. Right. But the directness of, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to invest in you by me telling you exactly what's going on. And yes. that's tough. Like it's not that always is, easy. Yeah. Oh, it's so hard. It's so yeah. hard. I, you know, I really like it's, it's, I will say I, it's easy to manage up 
you know, you climb and you kind of know, like, I know what you want to hear. I can kind of, I can be a good performer. Then you turn around and all of a sudden you've got people following you and it's like, oh my God, I didn't realize all of the components, you know, that go into, into leadership. Um, and being that kind of knowing you have to deliver sometimes disappointing news and you can't make someone happy with you, but how can you do that with the most respect? Yeah. Uh, directness sounds so obvious, not your first response. I found like, you know, that sounds like, oh, duh, of course you're direct, but like, no, that's, it is, it's very hard to do that. I think it is important. Like you're saying, I think I try to remember like, how would I really want someone to say this to me? And like, right. it helps know. a lot. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then my last one, which I don't know, I feel like sometimes when I get to this point in the interview, I have a sense, but with you, I don't. So I'm curious about what you would say mm. if you think about young Jessica and you think about um, perhaps kind of that first gig in Detroit, maybe where you were at that point, or even trying to navigate early on the job in writing that you wanted you know, you think about her and like, what advice would you give her in terms of where you are now kind of looking in the rear view, not so much like, would you make different choices, but, but what would you tell her that could have made the path a little bit easier? Um, you know, something that just, you know, take a little bit of a lift to, to the whole experience. Yeah. Find an advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think one, I definitely looked in the wrong places. I had two copywriters. I wanted to be my mentors. Both were straight white men. Look, I love straight white men. I have plenty of friends who are straight white men. However, they, they weren't going to understand the intricacies of my experience. Um, I still respect both of those people as copywriters, but I needed to find someone who could be an advocate that understood my experience. Right. Because, and I say this too, when I'm, when I'm speaking to younger groups of people, I acknowledge like I'm a cis white female from a family with money to pay for my college, which means the risks and the decisions that I've made don't translate one-to-one -one for everyone. And I think it's really important to get advice from someone who shares your life experience and can understand it and really give you wisdom that's tailored more to you. And that's not to say you shouldn't have voices that are different from you. It's just, if someone's going to be key advising you, they really need to understand what it's like to be in your shoes. Right. And so I think finding a woman who was where I wanted to go because they're out there. You might have to send a hundred cold calls, but I know from working in advertising, I mean, I would say I'm one of them, but I have a lot of peers who would love to get a virtual coffee with or mentor a woman who wants to be in advertising. And I wish that I had not tried to go it alone. Um, Cause when I did ultimately find those people, I mean, oh my gosh, changes everything. It's huge. That's so, great. I love that. And I love the, push, right? That call to action to try and, and put yourself out there and find those people because they're there. I love that. So, so good. Uh, this has been such a joy. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. And I really appreciate uh, how open you were about everything. And also what a fascinating journey you're on. And I'm like excited to see and hear about how it continues. It's really, yeah. really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always like at the end of any conversation like this, I'm like, you can follow my adventures at a van called Dolly on Instagram and see my beautiful van. But more importantly, if, you know, if someone were to listen to this and, yeah. and they have a woman in, or a young person um, mm -hmm. who is interested in advertising, like I raise my hand and I'm more than happy to, to talk to people about that journey. So 
Um, yeah, thank you so much. This is a really good, it flew by and I, oh, I appreciate you, you facilitating the experience. I'm a newbie. This is my first time doing a podcast interview. You're a pro. So thank you for making it easy. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us today. I sincerely appreciate how open and vulnerable you were with regards to your mental health and taking a medical leave. You had some great advice, like accepting counsel from other people, but making sure that you're satisfied with your own decisions because only you have to live your life about leadership and how you need to be authentic in your approach. Respecting the people you are leading can play a key role in building relationships with them and also how important it is to find an advocate, someone in your career that understands your experience and can give you wisdom that is tailored to someone like you and how she wishes she didn't go it all alone <laughs> in her own path. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode and to Hannah for your support. A huge thank you to our Relatable community for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment and subscribe either on YouTube or your favorite streaming platform. Uh, we also appreciate comments. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, and you can find more information about Relatable and our sponsor by visiting www.tfasoftskills.com. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.